Daddy. What are you working on? Oh, hey, Sophie. Just preparing for this week's Insights at Work episode. Oh, awesome. Maybe you could talk about creating an organizational culture where speaking up is encouraged. Um, okay. That's a pretty odd question coming from an eight-year-old. And ask them if there might be aliens in space. Ah, uh, that's more like the question I'd expect from you, Sophie. Well, it just so happens this week's guest is an expert in both of those fields. This is Mission Control. How y'all doing today, Jeff? We're ready for podcast launch. Standing by. Where's that voice coming from? Um, I don't know, honey. Hello? Mission Control? Copy that, podcast team. Initiating countdown sequence. Who's that lady? I still don't know, sweetie, but I think we better get started. This is the Seven, Insights six, at Work podcast. Five, four, three, two, one. Let's dive in. HR, the final business frontier, whether it's exploring strange new worlds of employee engagement or seeking out best practices in recruitment, the team at the Insights at Work podcast boldly goes where no podcast has gone before. And today is no exception. Our guest has a very unique set of skills from being an aquanaut, author, keynote speaker, medical doctor, a pilot, a CEO, a NASA executive. Oh, did I mention he's been to space twice? Joining us today to talk about his experiences and observations from the bottom of the seafloor to the boardroom to his 29 days spent in space. Why, this will be the closest I ever get to meeting a real-life Marvel superhero. We're talking with Dr. Dave Williams. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Williams. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. After I saw you speak at a recent HR conference, I read your book, Leadership Moments from NASA, Achieving the Impossible, and it's a great read. You write about NASA's biggest historical moments and the great or not so great examples of leadership during that time of success and tragedy. And then after detailing what happened behind the scenes, you offer your own leadership insights for the reader to take away. It's a great format to see how leadership principles are the same, whether they're in my office or in the halls of NASA or on the launch pad of Cape Canaveral. What prompted you to take that approach, Dr. Williams. I was really curious to learn more about the key leaders that were in senior management at NASA during those really challenging times. In the beginning, when NASA was just being created and we had to go within literally 10 years in that first decade, through three launch vehicles, the Mercury, Gemini, the Apollo program, to successfully put humans on the moon and bring them back is unbelievable. Dealing with situations like the Challenger disaster or the Columbia disaster and understanding how we all work together on the International Space Station, it was trying to delve into the individuals, the key leaders behind all those moments that I was really curious about. So, Dave, the results speak for themselves. 60 years of human spaceflight. And there's this common thread that you weave throughout the book. And that's a lot of NASA's biggest success was because of the adoption and the adaptation of what I think is modern leadership. 
So much had to do with the input of others moving away from the idea of a single heroic leader who guides the organization towards the concept that optimum results are achieved through leadership, followership, teamwork, and a sustained commitment to competency. There's no question, you know, today we all embrace this concept of followership, wanting people to speak up, not taking yes for an answer, de debating things to get the best possible result from a team. But back in the 60s, that was something quite new. And in fact, the results from the 60s speak for themselves. These results were achieved by people having those tough conversations. Sometimes they got a little bit heated and different points of view, different perspectives. But from that dialogue and Discourse, they were able to get to the key elements that enabled them to achieve the seemingly impossible, going from launching humans in space in 1961 to then sending humans to the moon in 1968 and walking on the surface of the moon in uh, July of 69. So Dave, what's your leadership style? You know, I don't have a single leadership style per se. I think what's really important is to have a repertoire of leadership styles. My definition for leadership is the ability to influence others. And depending upon the circumstance you're in, the team that you're working with, you may choose from a more directive style of leadership to a visionary style of leadership, to a coaching and mentoring style of leadership, or a participative style of leadership that certainly recognizes the expertise of everybody else that you're working with to achieve the objectives. I'm a firm believer that to lead an organization, you don't need to be an expert in the product. A CEO doesn't need to know how to deliver a demo of their vacuum or their software. They need to know how to lead people. And I found it so very interesting that the first director of NASA, Keith Glennon, had no experience in aeronautics whatsoever. He was a university president with a background in the motion picture industry. But what he did have was the knack for collaboration for linking groups from the different government agencies and having them share the best technology from each group with NASA. Now, how important is that in the field expertise to leading an organization, to making those huge breakthroughs, like getting a man on the moon within a decade of starting? You know, I think the key element that Keith Glennon demonstrated was that leaders need to be really good at leading, putting teams together and bringing the best out in people. You saw that in George Lowe, another one of NASA's senior leaders in the 1960s, a remarkable engineer. But we have people in the organization who are there for the technical expertise. So understanding that when you're in a leadership position, the focus is on the behavioral competencies for you as a leader, not so much on your technical competencies in a specific area of expertise. That may help, but I, I was really surprised to learn about Keith Glennon's background and the great conversation he had with President Eisenhower when he said, I, I don't know anything about rockets. I don't know which way the rocket is up and which way is down. And Eisenhower recognized that well, that's the exact person that I need. Somebody can come in who's an expert at putting teams together and making things happen. That was the solution they needed at the time. So you talk about George Lowe. You give an example in the book. There's a pre-launch test for Apollo 1. And that launch test tragically resulted in a fire where we lost three astronauts. Now, of course, safety had always been paramount and at the top of everybody's priority list. But was that incident where... They then brought in George Lowe, the catalyst for a turning point in NASA's history, where the act of listening up 
and encouraging feedback became second nature to its culture? There's no question that listening up and engaging with the frontline team was critical in going from a, the loss of Apollo 1 in January 67 to then sending the Apollo spacecraft to orbit the moon December of 1968, a year and a half later, and landing humans on the surface of the moon in July of 1969. George was brought from NASA headquarters to Johnson Space Center, and he also had an assistant, George Abbey, who I had the privilege of working with when George Abbey was the center director. And George Lowe had George Abbey going out to interview all the frontline team members so that he could get the input on what was going on, what was working well at the front lines, what needed to be fixed. And then he would meet with individuals throughout all levels of the organization. And the key attribute that he had was asking critical questions, listening to the answers, and then implementing the best possible solutions. So you were first a family physician, and then you were an emergency doctor, and then you were part of, well, the hospital CEO of a large hospital here in Canada. What were those first questions when you sat with your leadership team or you sat with your frontline team members what did you ask? So the early questions that I was curious to answer were what's the culture of the organization? Who are we and how do we work in this environment? Because arguably organizational culture uh, defines how everybody interacts in the workplace. It sets the stage for the brand of the organization, what people say about the organization when they leave after having had an experience there. And then once I understood the culture, then I wanted to look for where we have strengths, which in our case was in the area of clinical care and uh, the frontline healthcare staff, the teams of people were remarkably amazing individuals. And then where we had challenges, and certainly we had budgetary challenges, we had resource challenges, that we had to be able to figure out how to meet solutions. And to try and understand those, I would often go out and spend uh, half a shift or part of a shift working with individuals on the front line, basically uh, uh, having them mentor me in their jobs so that I could understand what their challenges were and what they needed. I think that's a great example because I really believe that humble leaders are the ones who ask questions. They listen thoughtfully. They encourage team members to speak up so they can change organizational culture. If speaking up were easy, there wouldn't be an issue, but it's hard to speak up. And because it's hard, often it doesn't happen, even when it's requested by leaders. So you give the example of when a Nassau leader says, don't tell me what you think I want to hear. Tell me what I need to hear and why I need to hear it. So Dave, tell me more about encouraging others to speak up. How is it best done at NASA and how is it done with you in the corporate world? So from a corporate perspective, speaking up can become a corporate value. And the values of an organization reflect the way in which we work in an organization. I talk a little bit about that in the book as well. But speaking up as a value is something that many organizations resonate with. What's interesting, of course, is that NASA had been doing this for many, many years. When I was a CEO at a hospital, we introduced a new corporate value, speak up. We actually had to work with the team to teach people how to speak up respectfully and to be able to bring issues to the table. But more importantly, we had to teach people how to listen up. And so often, you know, we think, oh, this is real easy. Just tell people to speak up. Everything will be fine. It's not quite as easy as we think. We actually have to empower individuals to speak up. It's what we do when they speak up that determines if they will continue to do it in the future. 
leaders have to be listening and trying to understand what the issues are, not debating and interrupting, but listening very thoughtfully. And then I think it's very important for leaders to be able to close the loop with people that speak up and say, thank you very much. This is what I heard. This is what we did or I did. And this is what we're planning to do in the future so that people understand that speaking up in the organization has value and uh, changes an outcome of what's going on. Let's talk about the importance of debate and discourse. There was a NASA leader that you write about, Dan Golden, and he introduced the concept of a red team and a blue team. And that was to encourage debate. Can you explain the concept and why you think it's at NASA or in the workplace, really what that value of engaging staff in those discussions about encouraging debate at the end of the day, you know what? It's really positive and after the debate, we all go out, we're all still friends. You know, I think in organizations, we actually learn a lot more when we disagree than when we agree. Arguably, we learn more from failure than we do from success. And we only have those learnings if we're open to understanding and listening to see how we might change in an organization. So it's absolutely critical to create these conditions where people feel comfortable, where people feel safe disagreeing with each other, particularly if they're disagreeing with members of the senior team. You know, if you want to get to truth in an organization, you have to create the environment where people trust each other to be able to speak up and disagree do that respectfully and it's okay to have differences of opinion and yet still be able to go out and celebrate afterwards and enjoy being part of the bigger team we think about at home even with our loved ones we don't agree all the time so why would we think at work we have to be able to agree on everything a hundred percent of the time if you want to work in a successful organization you need to listen up You've got to speak up and be able to come to the best consensus to make these appropriate decisions. You give examples where at NASA, engineers, they hold each other accountable and they hold them to a very high standard. And the one that stood out for me, the example that you write about is when an engineer leaves a tool unattended. He didn't or she didn't put it back in the tool chest after they used it. And another engineer said to them, hey, that's not how we do things around here. That's not the NASA way. How do you create that sense, that environment of positive peer pressure? You know, I think it's part of the culture. There's many corporations, Nordstrom's would be a great example, where people are trained about the, the culture in that organization. You know, at Nordstrom's, you become a Nordy, and people understand what that means, the relentless commitment to customer service. So at NASA, when you're part of the NASA team, safety is number one. Safety in everything that we do for the people on the ground and the people in space, and needless to say, if you don't put a tool away, and that tool ends up in the engine bay of the space shuttle and becomes a problem in microgravity, that can be catastrophic. So we are, every member of the team is empowered to speak up. And if they see something they don't like, or that's not being done appropriately, they will mention that to other individuals. So in organizations, you know, I go back to the definition of leadership, the ability to influence others, downward influence in organizations is traditional leadership. You know, we look at that in the org chart. Upward influence in organizations is followership, where people are empowered to speak up. But peer-to-peer -peer influence is absolutely critical in high-trust, high-performing organizations to ensure that we're all participating in the checks and balances to make sure that things are being done the way they're supposed to. When it comes to communication, I think that's so important when you're creating that community of trust. 
And it's super important to keep everybody in the loop. Now, not surprisingly, there's different ways of communicating within organizations. Critical information or data, it should be shared within teams and with leaders using those critical communication skills. Now, you give this great example in the book where you and your spacewalk partner, Rick, are training in the underwater laboratory. In this example, I think it really underscores the importance of letting others know what's happening, how experienced teams are able to overcome those individual errors because they've included the input of other team members to trap or catch those errors before they have serious consequences. And of course, consequences in space mean life or death. So after the training exercise, when asked how you felt, you and Rick said, oh yeah, we thought it went pretty well, but it didn't really go as well as you thought. So can you share that story? <laughs> that was a great learning opportunity for both Rick and I. When you're doing spacewalks, there's so much attention on the spacewalkers, the people that are outside the spacecraft doing whatever the tasks are. However, they are supported by a whole team of people in space and on the ground in mission control. One of those really critical roles is what's called the IV person or the intravehicular person. They're inside the spacecraft and they're like the orchestra conductor of the spacewalk. And Tracy Caldwell was our Ivy crew person who was coordinating everything. Rick and I are off doing our own thing and everything's going, we thought, pretty well. And, uh, you know, we weren't particularly keeping Tracy in the loop. And uh, occasionally we'd say, yeah, we're doing this, we're doing that. And at the debrief, Tracy called us out on it. And I think that was really a brilliant moment that brought us together as a crew. She said, you know, if we do what we did today in space, we're not going to succeed. If you want to leverage my role in helping us stay on the timeline and making sure we're not making any mistakes or leaving any tools behind, then we need to be communicating more effectively together as a group. She had the courage to basically give us that feedback. She understood that we as uh, crew members were very receptive to that input. So I don't think she was particularly worried about the consequences, but uh, we were able to embrace all three crew members working together as a team and working seamlessly with mission control. So during the real mission on the spacewalks, we really didn't have any problems at all. And I think it was due to her speaking up right in the beginning that set the stage for that success. I think when I've heard you speak, and when I read the book, there's so many common themes that come out um, with the engineers at NASA, with the leaders at NASA, and with the astronauts. And I think they must all be type A, go, go, go. But they really put their ego aside and they know that dress me down today because it's going to be better for the mission. There's absolutely no question. You know, we, we make our mistakes on Earth so we can succeed in space. We want that feedback. And it's interesting as an astronaut, you know, when you go through different phases of training in the beginning, uh, you're just drinking from a fire hose trying to learn everything. But then as you become a little bit more experienced, particularly after your first space flight, you will then reach out to anybody that can help you with any bit of information that's going to make you better. And what's really interesting is if you look outside of the space program at who has attributes like that, it varies. Olympians are a great example. Most Olympic athletes will take feedback from anybody that will help improve their performance. So peak performing organizations are about creating an environment where people feel safe and trust each other to be able to give each other accurate feedback to perform their uh, improve their performance as individuals and as team members. I think a lot of uh, what happens in space, you just said, it's because of you're practicing, you're rehearsing, you're going through these simulations. And 
you put yourself through a very interesting simulation where you, you purposely fatigued yourself. And then that really paid off later on when you were in space. Can you, can you fill us in with that, that little story? Well, certainly in the last couple of years, this whole COVID pandemic has reminded all of us about wellness. And one of the key elements of wellness is, are we sleeping well? And what's the impact of fatigue on performance? There's many other different aspects of it, but there's no question whether you're a doctor, whether you're a pilot, whether you're an astronaut or many other professions, fatigue can critically impact your performance. So we would do these training sessions on Earth to get us ready for our spacewalks in space. We'd spend six hours underwater in a simulated microgravity environment. And I was really curious because, you know, these things last a long time. What would happen if I only had two and a half hours sleep before I did one of these training sessions? So I stayed up until about 4.30 in the morning and then got up around 6.30 or so and uh, went into the NBL and did one of these sessions underwater. And it was an amazing insight because I realized that it's so easy to make a mistake when you're tired. You have to critically focus on every step of every task to make sure you're not going to make a mistake. And then at the end of that training session, you can imagine how exhausted I felt. Well, I just did this as a learning experience, but it turns out before my first spacewalk on board the International Space Station, Rick Mastracchio and I were woken up in the middle of our sleep session by a fire alarm that went off on the space station. So we had to, you know, solve this alarm with the rest of the crew. Turn out it was a false alarm, but we were woken up, you know, halfway through. So you're trying to fall asleep again a couple hours before you need to wake up to go to a spacewalk. It was really tough to do. So what I did on Earth helped prepare me for that first spacewalk that I did for real in space. I think that example really underscores how maybe accepting NASA is or how you really did put your ego aside. Because I mean, if it was me, I would have thought I need to perform at 110% of my capacity every day. And I wouldn't want to take that chance of not being the best me just because I'd be worried about what the other team members or what the management thought. And I mean, I, I just, I think it really says a lot about your character where you're like, you know what, this might happen. So I, I want to experience this. And you weren't afraid to uh, put yourself behind the eight ball like that. I think one of the key elements in working in the space program is it's an environment of continuous learning that we're, we're always improving and trying to be better at everything that we do. And, and there's no question you have that safety and that trust that learning is okay. And sometimes we don't succeed during our training and we learn more from where we don't succeed than if simply things go well. And that's transferable to organizations. People in large organizations these days are talking about resilience. They're talking about corporate agility. Neither of these two attributes for organizations are developed instantaneously. They come from creating an environment of continuous learning, continuous improvement, continuous reflection, understanding when things don't go well, how we can improve that so we become more resilient as an organization, developing a process for ideation, managing ideas so that we become agile and able to deal with unforeseen circumstances. Now, you also give this example of uh, in the book where you're talking about how, you know what, managers and CEOs, sometimes it's always about trying to cover your butt. And you're like, don't hide behind those email chains. That face-to-face -face communication is so important. 
Well, I kind of joke about it. You know, I, people ask, well, how do I know if I'm working in a high trust or a low trust organization? And, you know, I sort of smile and say the best indicator is see how many BCC emails you get every day. Because in a low trust organization, people do have a tendency to use those BCC emails. You know, it's sort of like a, a CYA maneuver. We all know what I mean by that. And I think in high trust organizations, generally speaking, you are sending an email to the one person, maybe a couple of uh, carbon CC to other recipients, but there's a very small number of people you send it to. And then in high trust organizations, you also realize that email is not an ideal platform to talk about really challenging, very difficult issues or one where you have to have very candid conversations because there's so much in the importance of dialogue that you just can't get easily through an email chain. So it's understanding what the most effective means of communication are for the different critical issues an organization might be facing. And so how did you effectively communicate with your HR team at the hospital? Well, I, with the HR team at the hospital, it would be face-to-face. -face. I'd say 90% of the time face-to-face, -face, and then 10% of the time would be by email or thing. Email tends to be used for more routine communications, things that are going on. But to talk about a complex issue, to sit down and think about our strategy, our corporate strategy to uh, implement learning into the organization or modify our, our feedback program for team members, it would always be face-to-face. -face. What was the scariest moment for you when you were in space? On my second space flight, Clay Anderson and I were outside on the last spacewalk of the mission. 20 minutes into the spacewalk, the fire alarm for the space station goes off. Now, Clay and I are outside and we're looking at each other going, mm, is this a false alarm? Is this real? And then, of course, after about five, 10 minutes or so, uh, mission control called us to let us know that it was a false alarm. But these are the moments that get your attention. And of course, you know, in astronaut humor, we joke and we say, if you have a problem when you're outside doing a spacewalk, you may have the rest of your life to solve the problem. And so like talking about that famous quote, Houston, I think we have a problem, which of, of course came from the movie with Tom Hanks. That, that was probably the first time it was said. Um, what, uh, what movies are, are there when you watch movies about space? Are you like, yeah, that's kind of accurate. Or is it just usually like, no, that would never fly. You know, Apollo 13 is probably one of the most accurate movies on space. There have been other ones about Apollo 11 that have come out around the 50th anniversary of Apollo. So those ones tend to be uh, more of a documentary style, and they tend to be very factually accurate, and they're really quite engaging. You know, then you transition into movies like The Right Stuff, which is sort of a blend of both and follows uh, Tom Wolfe's novel of the same name. And then you get over to the highly fictional ones or, you know, just the fun comedic ones like Space Cowboys, which is just, it's a lot of fun to be able to watch something like that. And, you know, maybe I'll get a chance to go fly in space again when I'm in my 70s or 80s. Awesome. Are there any leaders that you really hold in high regard? Who do you look at as the best either, you know, leaders in the military or leaders in business? But, you know, it's, uh, it's a real privilege being able to work with different individuals. Uh, in my earlier years, I worked at the 1976 Olympics in Montreal, and George Gate was the aquatic director of Point Claire Aquatic Department, where we had uh, one of the Olympic training sites. So I had a chance to work for George Gate, again, an, a remarkably uh, talented leader, a uh, remarkably talented Olympic swimming coach, and learn from George 
uh, how to bring out the best in individuals and how to bring out the best in people that are part of a team. I uh, had also a chance to work in the YMCA and Scott Haldane, the former YMCA CEO of Canada, is a really good friend of mine. And I think the Y is a great organization to help teach people the principles of leadership and teamwork. I'm sure you've attended a lot of galas, a lot of banquets. You've met a lot of celebrities, a lot of very powerful, influential people. Has there ever been a time where you've just been starstruck? You know, there's just different elements to the whole um, experience. As part of the senior team at NASA, you get a chance to meet all the VVIPs, the VIPs that come to various launches. So I've had a chance to meet uh, President Clinton, uh, Hillary Clinton, Madeleine Albright, amazing, amazing individuals. And, uh, you know, there's no question that those senior experienced government leaders are, are really incredible to be able to meet. Uh, in Canada, I've had a chance to meet a number of the prime ministers. I spent a fair amount of time with Brian Mulroney uh, back when I was hired as an astronaut. And it's really interesting talking to leaders like that one-on-one -on -one to understand the challenges that they face on a day-to-day -day basis. Is there anything impactful that we haven't talked about today? You know, we've touched on so many different aspects of leadership, followership, and how to create peak performing teams. But I really want to underscore the importance of organizational culture. Every organization has a culture, but there's not all that many people that actually will actively inquire about the culture within an organization, try and understand the culture within an organization, and learn how to change the culture within an organization if that needs to be done. And that centers around the corporate values, the way in which people do things on a day-to-day -day basis in the organization. So we talk about that in the book. And I think, you know, from my perspective, working in the NASA way, the NASA organizational culture certainly changed my thinking as a leader and as a member of peak performing teams. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the Insights at Work podcast, as we do with every guest, whether they've been in space or not, I ask a list of their favorites and firsts. Are you ready? I'm ready. Now, I'm not going to ask you anything about Area 51 or if there's intelligent life out there, just really serious questions. I'm ready. All right. What is the first thing that comes to your mind when I ask you, is there intelligent life out there? Statistically, we would be naive to think that we are alone in the universe. You know, when you start thinking about all the other galaxies that are out there and the other planetary bodies, first of all, the statistical probability of life is quite high, whether you're talking about microbial life or other life forms. And then, of course, intelligent life. Well, if are we alone in the universe on this planet to have intelligent life? So I think statistically, the probability is yes. All right. All right, back, back to the list of first and, and favorites. What was your first car? First car was a 1967 Pontiac Firebird, which uh, I think I bought, well, I bought it used for $900 and I sold it after putting about 40,000 miles on it for $1,100. So I made a profit. And if I kept that car till today, it would have been worth quite a bit. Cars are a thing with astronauts, aren't they? Well, it seems that way, particularly spacewalkers, because if you can fix your car, then hopefully you can fix the space station if there's a problem. And uh, I think it's Corvettes that American astronauts love, or do they just happen to get one? Well, they were they lucked out in the 1960s and got a Corvette. You know, for modern astronauts, we don't get the Corvette in the driveway the way they used to back in the past. 
Dave, what was your first job? I was 13 years old and I worked as an assistant swim instructor and junior lifeguard at a YMCA day camp in Montreal. I worked for 10 weeks and my paycheck was $25, but I loved the experience. And arguably that responsibility helped me become uh, a leader and learn about working in different environments later in life. What was the first concert that you ever went to? Hmm, that's a great question. Probably uh, the Beach Boys way back in the 1970s in Montreal. And what was your favorite concert? Oh, I think Simon and Garfunkel, when I turned 50, they were playing in Houston and uh, we got really great tickets to go and see it as a birthday present. That was pretty amazing. Awesome. Did you get to meet them? No, I didn't. We didn't uh, kind of say, oh, there's an astronaut here. He'd love to meet you. But uh, I did fly a CD in space for Eric Clapton and got a chance to return it to him when he was playing in Houston, which was a lot of fun. Oh, awesome. And what is your favorite piece of advice that you give to young professionals just starting out? Don't let other people define your dreams. So often, you know, we, we take feedback from other people and it's important to listen to other people, but also to put that through a filter. And if you have big dreams and you want to do something, uh, I simply say, go for it and ask, what are the things that you have to learn to be able to make that happen? When I was a kid, I was told being an astronaut would be impossible because Canada did not have astronauts. I'm glad I didn't listen to that statement. So what you're saying is I still have a shot to be an astronaut. Of course. Actually, you have a better shot now than in the past because you can fly with the private sector. There's all sorts of ways to get to space these days. Dr. Dave Williams, it has been just such an absolute pleasure having you on the Insights at Work podcast. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed your questions. And, you know, the way I look at it, anything that I can share about the incredible experiences we've had in the space program and how we've learned from those challenges, I love being able to do it. So thanks again for having me on the show. Take care. Bye. And with that, it looks like we've run out of racetrack. Thanks so much for listening to the episode. If you've enjoyed it, please share it with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit from it as well. If you find the Insights at Work podcast worthy, please go on to iTunes and give us a cool rating with a nice review. We certainly appreciate it. And if there's something that you would like me to discuss around this big world of HR and all things business, give me a shout. You know how to reach me on social media or through LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay healthy and be kind. We'll see you soon on the next episode of the Insights at Work podcast. <laughs>